If you have a Bible today and you'll read with us, we're going to take a little unusual reading this morning. We're going to jump to three different places in one book. Um, And so I'd like you to turn to the book of Esther, chapter 2. The book of Esther, chapter 2. And this book of Esther has uh, nine chapters. And it's all one big story, one big narrative. And to really see the beauty of the purpose of this book, you kind of got to know the whole story. And I don't intend to get into the whole story this morning, but I would like to zoom out a little bit and take more of a comprehensive look at some of the things that occur here in this book. And I hope that it'll be an encouragement to you this morning. And that's certainly my intent as we look at these. So I'm going to look at various scriptures in chapter 2, chapter 4, and chapter 6. And that's kind of hitting some highlights of some thoughts that have been on my heart all week. And that I have felt inclined to share with you uh, this morning. So again, reading Esther beginning in chapter 2. And I'll give you a, a broader context if you're not familiar what's taking place here. I'll try to give you in a few moments a broader context as to what's happening after we read these three selected scriptures, and then we'll try to jump from place to place that we read to you this morning. Beginning in Esther chapter 2, verse 21, it says this, In those days, while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, Bigthan and Teresh, of those which kept the door, were wroth and sought to lay hands on the king Ahasuerus. And the thing was known to Mordecai, who told it unto Esther the queen. And Esther certified the king thereof in Mordecai's name. And when inquisition was made of the matter, it was found out. Therefore, they were both hanged on a tree, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. Now, if you will, turn to chapter 4, and we'll look at... Verses 12 through 17, this is perhaps, some of you may even have one of these verses in your home, or this is a very familiar text, one of these is, but we're going to read these few verses here in chapter 4, Esther 4, chapter 12, or excuse me, verse 12. And they told to Mordecai Esther's words, then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in thy king's house. In the king's house, more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knowest whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Then Esther bade them return Mordecai this answer Go, gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan. And fast ye for me, and neither eat nor drink three days, three days, night or day. I also and my maids will fast likewise, and so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way, and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. And the last one would be chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. So Esther chapter 6, verses 1 through 3 will be our final reading this this morning. It says this, On that night could not the king sleep, and he commanded to bring the book of records of the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's chamberlains, the keepers of the door, who sought to lay hand on the king Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor and dignity hath been done to Mordecai for this? Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, There is nothing done for him. I'll conclude our reading this morning of the selected texts that we read, and I'm sure I mispronounced some of those names that were written there. Nonetheless, um, we want to consider these scriptures this morning. And I have a very simple title this morning drawn from this text, and that is, God is faithful. God is faithful. 
I've been thinking about this scripture all week. I read this book on Tuesday morning, and uh, I suppose I've carried it with me all week, just in my own times out piddling or, or working in the garden. I've just thought about this story, and there are so many things in this story, and I've kind of resigned the fact that I'm not going to get everything that I has at least spoken to me this week with this text. But yesterday I received a phone call that um, goes along with this text that was encouraging to me. Um, some time ago, uh, a brother in the Lord um, had lost a child. And I shared that with the church when it happened. And it has stricken this family with grief, obviously, ever since. It's been about a year and a half now. And this brother of ours has uh, three other children that are lost and beginning to enter into the world and to out of education, out of their parents' home. And um, I know that's no doubt given them a lot of anxiety um, in that. And yesterday I got a phone call that their church is in revival and their kids were home and two out of their three kids have been saved this week. That was a big blessing to me. I cannot fathom the depth of sorrow that they have faced. And I have been around and talked with people who have lost had experienced similar similar loss and the indelible mark that that makes upon their life is just there's no words to describe and i think one natural thing that we find in human nature is this tendency to periodically as you're in the depth of sorrow god why god why And I would not doubt that that has probably hit their minds a thousand times. Excuse me. I'm sorry. Yet through that sorrow, they have remained faithful to the Lord. And in talking with them, and hearing the struggle, I have prayed so many times that God would just give them strength. And then... When the news this weekend came, I thought, God has not forgotten them. And what a unspeakable encouragement that must be, that your emotions ride this crazy ride for daily, for so long. All the time you're becoming an empty nester and going through all those emotions and the heightened anxiety after the loss that you have felt. And then for God to visit your family in such a tremendous way. What a consolation. And I thought of this scripture when I heard that news. I'm just going to read it to you. It says this. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your good works and labor of love, which you have showed towards his name. 
And it was a great encouragement to me this week. And I can't imagine what consolation it has granted them. I'm sorry for being so emotional this morning. That happened as I've been studying this text this week. And I suppose it preached to me the faithfulness of God in a very tremendous way. And I want to try to share some of that with you this morning. Now, the necessary backdrop to this book is a very fitting experiential thing. God's name is never mentioned in the book of Esther. And for many people, that is, seems very strange. There have even been many that have said, well, should Esther even belong in the Bible if it doesn't say God's name anywhere? And I would say it does not say God's name. That is correct. But his fingerprints are all over it. And I think that the writer, we don't know who the writer is. It doesn't tell us. I think the writer was conscious of that. That's my opinion. I think the writer was conscious of the fact that they did not put God's name, but wanted to show his evidence in such abundance, it was as though they wrote his name a thousand times over. Because you cannot, as you read the book of Esther, not see, if you know the Lord, to any depth. But the greater depth to which you know the Lord, the more familiar His work looks in the book of Esther. The closer you are to the Lord, and the more you have walked with Him in your life, the more that you have seen in your own life, that you have not looked at your own life through the lens of coincidence or shallow Christian culture, but that you have this personal, deep connection with the Lord, and you understand truly that everything that happens in your life is permitted or ordered by the Lord. And that because of that, you have a running dialogue with God that is that that spans years and years of your life about things that nobody else is acquainted with. And then God does things in your heart and in your life which you and God alone would know are things that you have walked with Him about, argued with Him about, frustratingly avoided Him about, rejoiced with Him over, And this running dialogue has gone on for years and years and years in your solitude, in the passivity of your day and your mind, when you're just, something comes to your mind and you whisper to the Lord something reminiscent of this conversation you've had over and over and over again. To me, this book of Esther is indicative that even though you have not heard an audible voice, Even though most Christians will never have a dream sent by God. Most of us will never have some vision. I know that Christian subculture today likes to sensationalize those things. But the reality is, even if God does permit those things to occur, the likelihood is most of us will never have that experience. No, the experience of the Christian life is one of an invisible but very real God if you walk with Him. And that's a constant trial for all of us. That when we're stepping through life and our expectations are not just unmet, but woefully unmet... And you think that you understand God's angle in your life. You ever been there? You think you understand what God is doing in you and through you and with your family. And then a curveball is thrown. That came in a completely unexpected way. And then it really digs down to the root of your understanding of, well, maybe I've not understand the whole time what God has been doing. 
And at those times, if we're weak in our faith, our flowers begin to wilt, our fruit begins to shrivel up, and we begin to to doubt and struggle, and that's a common experience that we all have. I think the book of Esther is written without God's name because, in a sense, that is the way we live. We know He's there. We see the evidence of His presence. But day to day, we don't see with our tangible eyes Him. And that's so fitting, the way the book of Esther is written. His name is nowhere, but His presence is everywhere. This is occurring about a hundred years after after, um, the Jews have come out of captivity in Babylon. They're now subject to the Persian Empire. If you don't know anything about the Persian Empire at this time, they were it. They were everywhere. Um, Movies are made about King Xerxes or Artaxerxes or Ahasuerus is what he's called in here. And so we're going to bring to your attention this morning in this narrative four people. Mainly, four main characters. The first one, I'm going to call him King Xerxes because it's a lot easier to say than Ahasuerus, right? So King Xerxes, he's the main player that we learn about in chapter one. And as is common, as we mentioned here on Wednesday night, with kings, historically, but all through the Bible, what we see this tendency with kings is that when they get very proud and they're wanting to demonstrate to everyone how great they are, What they tend to do is reveal all of their wealth and their greatness through a party. And so that's what King Xerxes does. But as far as I can tell, no king in all of the Bible exceeds his party. We can look at King Solomon, King Hezekiah, all these different kings, Belshazzar that does these type of things. But none of them do it to the extent that this king does. He throws a party for 185 days and he brings out gold cups and the greatest feasts and he invites as many people as he possibly can to come to this perpetual party and we learn from chapter one that it implies to me he is perpetually inebriated. He is perpetually caught up in The spirit of this party. And if we go back and read history outside the Bible, we find that to be a very accurate portrayal of this king. He was known in part for that type of lifestyle. And so this runs synonymous to everything we know about him. And in the midst of this grand party that he is having, he wants to show in his drunkenness the beauty of his wife and show off just another one of, in his mind, his belongings. Right Now he has concubines and wives and all of these different things that at this time, of course, is looked at as property by the Persian Empire, especially as a king. And so he's saying, I want you to see all of my riches. And now to top it off, you should also envy me because look at the beauty of my number one wife. And so he beckons Queen Vashti to come and come before the people that she might show off her beauty. And it's really an attempt For the king to brag before the people. I know that's not a pretty story, but that's the story. Well, Queen Vashti gets the news from the guards, and she says, no, I'm not going to do that. Well, you don't do that in Persia. Historically, you don't do that in any kingdom. Especially not in Persia. So, the king says, you're not not the number one lady anymore. You're not the first lady. I am demoting you. And now a search must be done for a new queen. So we turn the page to chapter 2. And this search begins. The king's, I'll say minions, to be a little lighthearted about it. The king's minions go out and they're looking for the most beautiful young women in all of the kingdom. And... There is a lady with the name of this book named Esther, and she's a Jew, which means a number of people from the Babylonian captivity, the faithful Jews, had returned back to Jerusalem. They're in the process of rebuilding Jerusalem. They're in the process of really attending to God's work, 
And yet over here in the city of Susa, which is the capital of Persia, there's this little remnant of people who had not been faithful, who did not want to go back and attend to the things of the Lord, but rather had been born and grew up in this location and were contented to enjoy this this new culture that they were getting swallowed up in. This is where Queen Esther is at. And her beauty is noted by the king. And through a series of of various trials and things that would happen over the course of the next year, Queen Esther is elevated to this number one position in the kingdom as a woman. And she is told by Mordecai, which is another person we'll talk about here in a moment, don't tell anybody that you're a Jew. They're fearful because that is an inferior race within that culture that there might be some disadvantage to her revealing her true identity. So, so far we have King Xerxes. We have Mordecai, who is a Jew. He's giving advice to this beautiful woman, Esther, his niece. Do not reveal your identity to the king. Yet she's in this place of power. We come over to chapter 2, and at the very end of chapter 2, the scripture that we read to you this morning tells us of this coincidental event. I say that with air quotes around it, of course. It's not coincidental whatsoever. It's divinely appointed. But it seems coincidental. You see, Mordecai tends to hang around the courtyard of the kingdom. So he is constantly going back and forth every day, and him and Esther, since he raised her, have this relationship where he's Still giving her guidance, still helping her, and she's depending on on him as this paternal influence. And while he's meandering around the kingdom, he's standing and he just happens to overhear a conversation by two men that basically are guards for the king. And they're angry at King Xerxes. And they said, let's conspire together to kill him. And Mordecai overhears this unbeknownst to these men and he alerts Esther and Esther tells the king and then an investigation is done and it's concluded that yes, these men were planning to do this and that the man's life or the king's life was spared because this plot was uncovered. And it tells us the part that we read to you that this deed that Mordecai did was recorded in the book of Chronicles. Not in the chronicles that we have here, but just in a journal that the king kept to keep him informed about what's going on in the kingdom. So this is written down, and then we turn the page to chapter 3, and the narrative shifts, and we completely forget about what Mordecai does. And it adds our fourth person that we're going to talk about today, a man by the name of Haman. Haman is called, and from what I can find, it's the only time where this phrase is used, an Agagite. Now that name Agag should ring a little bit of a familiar tone because if you'll remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul was told to go into the Amalekite uh, uh, um, or fight the Amalekite army and to destroy everything. And he did except he kept the king alive. He kept some animals alive. He didn't fully comply with God's command. And the king's name was King Agag. And so this is an important detail in the story because what we learn is that this man, Haman, was an Agagite, which means he was, from a, he was a descendant of people who were enemies to the Jews. And so right away, he has this ought against Mordecai because first, he's of a different ethnicity. And I'll pause for a a moment and say, I want to show you here, racism that we struggle with today, all of those things are all throughout the Bible. Despite this attempt uh, in modern day to make this out to be a brand new thing, this is one of the undercurrents of this text is we learn Esther is hiding her ethnicity. Why? Because it'll give her a disadvantage. Right? That's what Mordecai is saying. Haman has a degree of hatred towards him because they're of a different ethnicity. Right? And so this is prevalent all throughout the story. And in truth, almost every book of the Old Testament you read, that's a part of the story, whether it's pronounced to be so or not. Haman 
is elevated by the king Xerxes to be, best I can tell, the second in command in all the kingdom. And so one of the things that the king says to do when Haman comes into the room is everyone is supposed to bow at the feet of Haman. And Mordecai the Jew, Esther's uncle, says, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to bow to anyone. It, to me, seems like he's saying, because I want to bow to the Lord. That's me reading into it. Perhaps that's not the case. Either way, he's saying, I'm not going to bow to Haman. Haman learns that Mordecai is not going to bow to him. And Haman has his eyes fixed on killing Mordecai. Except the problem is, as is often the case when people begin to be angry at someone, it's not just an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It's, I'm going to not just take one of your eyes, I want both of them. Or in other words, the temptation of human nature when somebody has wronged us is to continue to up the ante and make them pay more than the wrong they're doing to you. And so, Haman finds out the type of people he is from, that Mordecai is a Jew. And now Haman's goal is not to kill Mordecai, it's to kill every Jew in all of the kingdom of Persia. Over 127 provinces, and if I understood correctly, it spans thousands of miles in different directions. And so Haman, his plot is, I want to kill everyone because of this personal slight that Mordecai did to me. Now I'll make a side note here and just say, look at how far that pride can take us. That we can become so proud that the sight of one man not kneeling when I walk by can cause somebody to commit genocide and kill millions of people. That's what's happening here with Haman. Chapter 4 begins, and Mordecai learns of this. So, let me back up for a moment. Haman goes to the king. He gets the king's decree. To decree, all the Jews shall be killed on this day. But here's an interesting twist. When will this happen? So, Haman rolls the dice to pick the day. I never knew that before until I began to study it this week. He takes a dice... And he rolls it to figure out which day should those people be executed. And it ends up to be quite a while away. And so these Jewish people, and Mordecai particularly, feeling responsible, and yet to Haman, it's all a game. He has literally rolled this dice and said, this is the day that all these people are going to be executed. And now the Jews know that the day of their execution is going to come, but they don't even know how it's going to happen because the actual decree says this. They can just be attacked and put to death by anybody in the kingdom completely free. And so imagine you're going to live weeks and weeks and weeks and you know there's a day coming And your neighbors can legally put you to death on this day with no punishment. Imagine the suspicion you would live in. Imagine the fear that you would live in. Imagine the temptation to run. But where are you going to run? Because every direction you go for hundreds of miles, you're still in the Persian kingdom. You're still a target. Chapter 4, Mordecai learns of this. And I believe this is when Mordecai begins to vaguely see the providence of God. Now... I think sometimes we underestimate the providence of God even in this. Did you know Esther was a beautiful woman? That was part of God's providence. Now, in our day, being beautiful is a great benefit to a woman. But in historical days, not necessarily the case. Because if you're a beautiful woman and you don't have legal rights of protection then you're a target with no recourse to a higher court to protect you. And so though beauty in our day is a good thing, most people would say beauty in that day, it could be a good thing, but it could also put a target on your back. Esther is this beautiful woman, and it is by her beauty that she gets to be placed in this position where God is going to use her to save a whole lot of people. And I would pause the narrative for a moment and point this out. 
In our lives, very often the culture imposes on us these standards and expectations of behavior, intelligence, the way we look, the way we are. They impose that on, here's the way it ought to be. If you're a woman, here's the way you ought to look. If you're a man, here's where you ought to work. Here's the accomplishments you ought to achieve. Here's how you prove your masculinity. And especially if you're a young person this morning, I want you to know that as you grow up, there are these pressures placed, especially from uh, the media, especially from institutions of higher learning, that there is a certain way to be. And if you don't fit just like this, there is something wrong with you. But I want you to know that even in this story, one of the most pivotal things of all the story that God uses is the fact that this, this woman's appearance gives her access to the seat of power. And today, it is no different for all of us. God has created us exactly the way that he wants us. The way you look, the way you act, all these different things that are natural, that are uncontrolled. I don't want to say the way you act, but the various things about you are providential. God made you the way that he wants you. And if you have certain deficits, welcome to the rest of the world because everybody else does too. And you ought not, as Satan will attempt to do, and as the world to elevate themselves might attempt to do, to focus on all the things where you are insufficient in comparison to other people. God has created you just the way that he wants. And if you'll submit every aspect of your life to him, you might be surprised what God uses in your life to accomplish his will. I used to want to be a good singer. I have friends that are like phenomenal singers. I have two sisters that are really good singers. I'm just, eh. And it used to bother me a lot. Until I slowly began to realize, you know, if I was a really good singer, I'd be a very proud person. I'd walk into gas stations singing. Just so that people would say, hey, you're really good. And God knows that about me. And so God said, No. That would cause you too much of a stumbling block. That would be a detriment to you. And now I can thank God and say, God, thank you. You know the pride of my heart. And you have given me exactly what you want. And I'm satisfied with that. Especially a young person today. I wanted to say that to you this morning because I feel like it's really important in the world we live in for you to realize every part of you was designed by God. Here in the story, Mordecai comes to Esther and he says, the famous verse, he's heard of this execution. He feels no doubt personally responsible because it's his behavior that's led to the attempted genocide of his people. And he goes to the courts. He sends a messenger to tell Esther. And essentially it boils down to this. Maybe the whole reason you're in the position you're in is for this moment right here. You're not going to escape. If you think because you're in the king's house you're going to escape, you're not. Once they discover who you are, you're subject to this law just like anybody else. But he says something very important in what he's saying. He says, perhaps you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. But he also says this. If you don't step up and do what God is calling you to do, salvation will arise from another place. I love that. I love that that is Mordecai's heart. And I want to really paint this picture for you. Mordecai, if you read in the beginning of chapter 4, is terrified and worried. He's overwhelmed. He's no doubt feeling responsible for this situation. And he is trying to solve the problem. He is trying to do everything he can to find relief for the edict which has been let out. And yet still at the same time, we see the condition of his heart that even though he's trying to find a solution to the problem that he feels as though he has created, he is still trusting that God... God will be faithful. God has promised him. God has promised his people. He would preserve them. 
And so despite facing annihilation, he is still saying, I want you to do what God is calling you to do. But if you choose to rebel against God, I trust that God is faithful. And I want to say this this morning to anyone here that might be completely drowning in life. We all go through periods like this. I wish somebody would have told me this whenever I was younger. I didn't realize how often in life that there are periods and seasons of life, unbeknownst to people around you, perhaps. Maybe those in your immediate family know. Maybe somebody at work might know difficulty you're facing there. Maybe there are other doubts that are internal that you are facing and that you're being confronted with over and over and over again. And it seems as though that Satan has become aware of those things and demonic forces are unleashing fury constantly. Or perhaps it's this slow cause that what Satan is attempting to do is that he knows that if he attacks you with this full fury that you'll be on defense and on guard. And so what he does is much more subtle and he slowly plants seeds and just watches them slowly grow because he knows the most effective way to destroy you is to just do it incrementally slowly as the famous thing says about a frog and putting in boiled water you just slowly turn it up and slowly turn it up and maybe that's what Satan is doing to you is that periodically he is attempting to just destroy you by slowly turning it up this morning I want you to know that no matter like Mordecai if you are overwhelmed by life and you are drowning and you're doing your best to put the facade forward, or even more so, convince yourself you're doing okay. Take a lesson from this man, Mordecai. God is faithful. I know at the bedrock, God is faithful. I can't tell you the overwhelming comfort that gives me. That there is nothing, when I... Consider what my children will face, and I've said this before, in the years ahead, even after I am gone. And perhaps if God would bless me with grandchildren if he allows time to go on, to think of the world they're going to face is terrifying to me. And Satan will try to discourage me and almost even invoke guilt in me for even having children to face a world like this. And yet, none of that outweighs in proportion the faithfulness of God. Mordecai was a facing extinction for everyone. And the king had the power to do it. And Mordecai says, you go follow the Lord. Maybe he's providentially placed you there for such a time as this. But if you don't, God is faithful. I hope today you will cling to that. God is faithful. Even when, let's go back to the beginning, he is invisible. His name is not mentioned. Right? In this text. But Mordecai is saying, yet I still know. I don't know how it's going to happen. So here we come into chapter 5. And Esther. Now here's another law that is on the Persian books. If somebody comes before the king without being invited before the king and he does not put out the royal scepter to accept them, they're to be put to death. And so, you know, we think of, we we perhaps placed how marriage works here with how it worked then, very different. I don't think any of the husbands here have a scepter, right? But basically, you can't go in your husband's presence. I see some of the husbands saying, amen, I wish I had one, right? Um, (laughs) You can't come in. It's not this close conjugal relationship that we might have today. Right? It's very different than that. Queen Esther is terrified to go into her husband's presence because if he does not extend that, her life is over. So she says, pray. You go tell all the Jews back there, please, to pray for me because I'm going to try to do what God's will is in this situation. She comes before the king. She invites him and Haman to a banquet. She's got this desire to unravel Haman's plot to show the king. But then something in chapter 6 that I read to you is very, very fascinating to me. 
and I want to reemphasize the providence of God in the what we consider casual, everyday things that happen in life. So here Esther is invited the king and Haman to come to this feast. She's terrified because she is going to have to tell the king about this. It's his number two guy. She's going to expose a betrayal or his ulterior motives rather. Her whole ethnicity is riding upon her success. Mordecai is pressuring her justifiably. She's going to try to tell him. And then it says in chapter 6, the very first three words of that chapter says, On that night. Now remember, Haman's rolled the dice. It's not for a long time when all this is going to take place. And on the night before, Esther is going to meet with Haman and the king to unveil the plot. The king can't sleep. That happens to me all the time, doesn't it, you? You're just laying around and your mind won't shut off and your mind just starts whirling. And so most of the time I just try to lay there in bed until I fall back asleep. But once in a while I'll just get up and go do something. Go read a book. Go do something. The king that night, coincidentally, right, can't sleep. So he calls, I don't have one of these, he calls his nighttime reader, right? That's what it seems like. He says, come have the Acts, the Chronicles come and read to me. And so he's laying there in his bed and he's having this person read to him the different chronicles of what's happened. And they read across that event that had taken place much earlier on, where Mordecai had protected the king. And so the king hears this and he says, what did we do for Mordecai? How did we reward him? And they said in verse 3, nothing's been done for him. Well, right at that moment, Haman, his number two guy, is walking in, doesn't really know what they're talking about. And so the king says, hey, come over here. I want your advice about something. Let's say I was wanting to honor a man and give him the greatest honor of his life. What would I, what should I do? Well, Haman thinks he's talking about me. And so Haman says, I think you should put him in royal apparel of the king. Let him ride on the king's horse. Give him the king's scepter and make somebody take this man through town and boast of him and tell him how great he is. And the king says, that's a great idea. I'm going to do that for Mordecai and you're going to be the man to go announce how great that he is. Haman, let's listen to his story for a moment. You know what he had done the day before? He had gone and built a gallow. Now, you can look at this yourself. When we think of the gallows, we think of a rope on a tree or something like that. Best that I can understand, that's not what they're talking about here. They're talking about a stake. You would be impaled. And the stake is 75 feet high. So Haman is wanting to make a public display of Mordecai. He's wanting to completely embarrass him by making the stake and killing Mordecai on the stake to show all of the Persian that he would not kneel to me and so I'm going to make a public display of him. That's what he had done the day before all this transpires. So Mordecai has gotten... He is put in the king's robe. He is put on the king's horse. And best of all, Haman is walking him through the city proclaiming Mordecai's greatness. Wow. Now, notice, I want you to notice this. At this point, Esther has not said a word. That's really important. Here's why this is important. Often we think God's ability to be faithful to us depends on myself or you. And it doesn't. God here has orchestrated this series of events completely independent of human agency. The king couldn't sleep. Mordecai was in the right place at the right time. 
the king wants to honor him and Haman is walking in coincidentally at the right time in order to say those things. And yet, here's the thing. All the time, with all of these different people, God is orchestrating the salvation of millions. I'm not going to keep on going on with this story. There's more to the story about this that is worth your read. I would encourage you to go back and read this story. I'll say this. I read it in the New American Standard Bible, and there were some details that I'd never picked up on before. I would recommend that to you. It's much easier to read sometimes in some of these older words that were located in this, in this book or in this version. Here's what I want to say. God is invisible in your life, but he's still working. When your emotions are taking you for a ride and you feel like God has forsaken you, God is still faithful. And as we said earlier about the personal story with the friend, with a brother of ours, God is not unrighteous to forget your good works and your labor of love. I'm not saying we do it for that reason. All I'm saying is that God's character is so supreme that he sees the faithfulness of his people and he will reward them in due time. I'm thankful this morning God was faithful to them. Now, here's, here's to me the, the most ironic part of the whole story, okay? The word pure or pur in the Hebrew language means dice. We go to chapter 9, and the Jews decide they want to have a festival every year to remember what God did in delivering them from annihilation. Even to this day, Jews celebrate this feast of when God used Esther and Mordecai to deliver the people. Do you know what the name of the festival is today? Purim. And here's what it's a play on words about. It's saying, you know what man was doing? He was rolling the dice, taunting us and trying to annihilate us. But as he was rolling the dice and it seemed as it was just random coincidence... God's hand was all over the dice to cause it all to happen just the way he saw fit. And so it's this way for the Jews to celebrate. It is not God's or it's not coincidence. Rather, my life is guided by God's invisible providence. And they celebrate that every year. They celebrate that he's been delivered them. But to me, that just adds to all of it, God's providence. I want you to know this this morning. I'm going to close with this. If you as a young person don't realize, and as an older person, but particularly if you're a younger person, realize God is in your life. God is involved in your life. And day after day passes and they seem like normal days. And you might not always notice what God is doing and why he is doing it. But that does not mean that he is not very present at work. One story and I'm done. One of the first times where this became an overwhelming truth in my life, I was in college. I got a little longer to get an additional degree. I finished my college education in the middle of a semester, or excuse me, in the middle of a year, school year. So I was going to be a Christmas graduate or a November graduate. Well, for teaching, the middle of November is not the time you look for a job. So, I was finishing up my, my student teaching and finishing up my college courses. I was coming to the second, third week of November, and I was thinking, okay, and this is literally my thought, I'm going to go work at the gas station down the road for a few months, and then I'm going to get a job and put in applications here. I had just gotten called to pastor a church in Whiteland, Indiana. We bought a house quarter of a mile from that church. The school in Whiteland was not even a quarter mile from my house. Obviously, my dream job would have been right there. But I just determined, you know what, I'm just going to wait. So the last week of my student teaching, Tuesday rolls around and my wife calls me and she says, you won't believe this. But there is a job opening at Whiteland High School for immediate need 
And of all the options of what I was certified to teach, it's the exact classes that if I could choose what I would want. And at that moment, I knew I got the job. Do you know why? Because that was the Lord. I walked in. I told my supervising teacher about it. I said, do you mind? I was done with all the teaching. I was just sitting there doing paperwork type stuff. Do you mind if I leave and go to the administration building of Whiteland just to inquire about the job? I said, okay. So I drove 20, 30 minutes down there. I walk into the administration building. If you know anything about school culture, principals are in the building because there's you know, thousands of crazy kids in the building. They've got to be there. Right? They don't leave very often. So I went to the secretary and I just said, may I speak with the human resource department or the officer there? And they said, hold on a minute. And I assumed the answer would be no. Right? Because thousands, I think 7,000 kids in the district, hundreds and hundreds, perhaps I don't know how many employees... I'm not going to get to talk to a bigwig just because I come in and ask. And they said, yeah, just go ahead and go back there to that room. And I walk into the room, and he's sitting there, and it just so happened that the principal of the high school was in there. And it also just so happened that he was the former principal of my high school. And it just so happened that I had been given an award by that principal at my high school when I graduated. All of that happened right at that moment. Now, why do I say that? I can sound very boastful, and I don't mean to. How can I boast about that? Do you not see the providence of God in every bit of it? And so I went in, and we talked for about 20 minutes about people we knew. And I knew the Lord had given me that job. And the next night... They called me and said, when can you start? And it was a Friday. And I thought, you know what? I've been in college all this time. I want one day off. And so I told them I could start on Tuesday. (laughs) Right? Um, I say all that to say, all of that time when I was making all those decisions about my education, about where I was going to move, about what I was going to do, I was making those unknowing that God was guiding. God, you know, that principle was there for one year. That was it. I saw the providence of God in that. Man, what, is, what are the chances that he would just happen to be there right when I would come in? I know that you have stories just like it. Where it and I want to encourage our young people today with those stories. As you think the monotonous days just go on and on and on, and you don't see any of God moving in your life, don't underestimate what God has already done and what he's preparing to do. You just don't know. That's the wonderful thing about being a Christian, is if you're determined, Lord, I just want to serve you, then you can trust He's going to take you places you never would have gone if you were using your own sight. And He's going to give you experiences that give you such confirmation that His hand is in your life, you couldn't write a script more accurate and faith-imbibing than that. I'm thankful for the Lord's providence. I'm thankful for the story and the encouragement it's been to me this week.